You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day, and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV, and crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, July 13th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and also establishing our Mission Impossible franchise rankings. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor and chief film critic Chris Evangelista. Hi. Chris, it's not a great time in Hollywood right now. No. Uh, <laughs> We're, we're in the middle of an ongoing writer's strike, and uh, as of last night, um, the SAG-AFTRA, the, the Screen Actors Guild, basically could not come to an agreement with the AMPTP uh, to avoid a strike for the actors. So it has not been officially announced yet. I, I believe they, the board took a vote this morning, and then there's going to be a press conference um, in about an hour and a half as we record this. Uh, so by the time people are listening to this, they'll probably know for sure. But it seems like, you know, 99.9% probability that there's definitely going to be an actor strike here. Um, how, how are you feeling about the state of Hollywood right now, Chris? <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. I just obviously it's just like, just pay these people what they want. Like, come on. Like, yeah, Holly, it's it's not even like. There's, there's, there's no comparison. You know, studio execs, they make millions and millions and millions of dollars a day. Like they're getting paid <laughs> absurd amounts of money a day and they, they don't want to like kick some of that down to the people who make this stuff happen. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's just, yeah. it's just more proof of 
how <laughs> I don't want to get miserable here, but just like just how shitty things are where the rich get richer and the rest of us are all like, hey, can I live, please? Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, it definitely feels like we're reaching some sort of cultural breaking point or something. But um, yeah, this is this is I think the first time that there's going to be a double strike in since like 1960 or something or in over 60 years anyway. Um, so yeah, uh, we have a whole article about like what this means and everything that's going to happen if the, the SAG after strike actually goes through, which again, seems like it's going to. Um, it's kind of a fool's errand to predict how long strikes will last. But historically speaking, the studios have been more willing to cave to the pressure of actor strikes, uh, certainly much faster than writer strikes. So what this means for the WGA strike is hard to say, and it depends on like a lot of things that we simply just like don't know right now. But there are two quick things that I wanted to bring up. So the first is that I heard a WGA writer say that they anticipated the strike lasting at least 90 days because that's the threshold where the studios can start canceling the expensive overall deals that they had with people like J.J. Abrams and Shonda Rhimes. So I'm not sure if that 90 day thing is is like 100% true, but if it is, we're only on day 70 something of the WGA strike. So there may be a ways to go yet there. Um, so that's kind of a bummer. And then the, the second thing is there was this article on Deadline uh, earlier this week that quoted an anonymous studio executive as saying, the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses, which I think speaks to what you're talking about, Chris. Just like, let people live for the love of God. What do you it's, think? it's terrible. Like, and then they walked that that comment back, though. It's yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people believe that statement was meant to scare the writers. But from what I've seen anyway, it seems to have done the opposite. It appears to have had a, a galvanizing effect. And like from a, a purely financial perspective, these studio CEOs are out to serve their shareholders. And at a certain point, not having any new scripts or, you know, scripts for movies or TV shows or actors to perform in them is going to result in their share prices dropping. And once that happens, it's only a matter of time before the shareholders either convince the CEOs to do what they should have done in the first place and give the writers the protections that they're asking for, or the CEOs themselves could be pushed out and lose their own jobs. So, I mean, it just seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot here. So uh, anyway, we'll see how all this plays out, but we support the actors and the writers and hope that this gets resolved to their satisfaction very soon. Um, we also have a, a great piece that went up yesterday uh, by Jeremy Smith that says that the headline is, as the writer strike heats up, the studios have become absolute movie villains. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes and people can check that out. Um, okay, so we don't have a lot of time to get into, you know, some of the news and stuff that's going on here. Um, the, the strike is where all of Hollywood's attention is right now. But uh, weird timing, the Emmy nominations came out yesterday. <laughs> um, it's it's a kind of bizarre uh, period to be like celebrating uh, some of the best TV shows on the air when the writers and the actors are are in such a dire straits right now. But um, Chris, was, was there anything that you were particularly pleased to see get some attention in the Emmy nominations? I mean, I'm happy Succession got a ton of stuff. I love Succession. I'm happy Better Call Saul got nominated for things, although I saw that it didn't get nominated for cinematography, which seems insane because that show was just a feast for the eyes. But mm. other than that, I don't really follow the Emmys that much, but yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like when my shows get nominated and when things I don't like, it don't get nominated. I'm like, well, someone made a mistake. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, the high and mighty uh, train that we all love to get on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm very much in the same boat. I, I don't, I mean, I watch a lot of TV, but, um, but yeah, I, I'm not like fully invested in, what gets an Emmy. Uh, although I will say that it was, it was nice personally for me to see Andor get a nomination for outstanding drama series, um, which I just thought that show was tremendous. Chris, did you watch Andor? No, I've yet to get around to watch it, even though everyone says it's great and, and it's better than the average Star Wars show. So oh, one day I will watch it. Yeah. By like leaps and bounds. I think you would genuinely love it. And that's saying a lot considering you, I think you and I are very much like on the same page in terms of being like a lot, very much burned out on, you know, what the Star Wars TV experiment is that's happening right now. So uh, yeah, you would love Andor. Anyway, uh, there's that. And then um, there's a few uh, Superman legacy casting announcements that came out recently. And I'm going to link to those in the show notes and you can read more about that. But people like Nathan Fillion and uh, Anthony Kerrigan, who played um, Noho Hank and Barry, have joined the cast of that movie. So um, lots of potential fun additions there for James Gunn's upcoming Superman film. So check that out. But uh, before we move on, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Chris, I am very excited to do this episode with you because I know that you're a huge fan of the Mission Impossible movies. I think in your review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, you mentioned something along the lines of, I don't have the, the line right in front of me, but you basically said that like the Mission Impossible movies are better than what the, every John Wick movie and something else combined. The Fast and the Furious. Fast movies. and Furious. Okay. Uh, so yeah. What's your relationship to the Mission Impossible movies before we get started here? I love the Mission Impossible movie. I love them top to bottom. And even the ones that I don't think are that good, I still kind of love them. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I've been with this series since the beginning. I remember when the first one came out, I watched it on VHS. I didn't go see it in the theater, but I, I watched it on VHS and I was I was enamored with it. I thought it was great. And and then of course the franchise went through a weird period with with parts two and three. And then it became what it is today, where it's this jaw dropping extravaganza where Tom Cruise is constantly risking his life, and the set pieces are getting bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier. And the the characters uh, are worth paying attention to. I don't think they're particularly deeply drawn characters like there's not a lot to all these characters but i enjoy spending time with them i will i like watching them on their missions and uh so and i i honestly do believe that this is our best modern action franchise i love the john wick movies i'm not that into the furious films uh they just never have been much to me how dare you chris i know i'm sorry <laughs> i know people love them and that's I'm waiting for it to end if it ever ends. And then I'm going to go back and like watch it from the beginning and see if I like it more. I just remember <laughs> being like, yeah, I, don't, I don't care about this, but so I, that's interesting. The fast series as a binge might work better than it does. Yeah. Individually. <laughs> yeah. Oh. One, one day, but yeah, these, these mission movies are just uh, phenomenal. Um, I do, I do kind of miss the early days when not early days, but I do kind of miss that for a while there, it was like a director, delivery system like they all had different directors and i love christopher mcquarrie's work i think it looks great he is a very good action director but there is a part of me that wishes they would go back to like handing it to a new exciting filmmaker each time because i always thought that was like a neat uh element of the franchise like every film would have like like brian de palma and then john woo and then uh J.J. Abrams, which yeah. you know, <laughs> we could take or leave him, but then, you know, and, and and you know, so on from there. And so I, I would, I wish it would kind of go back to that, but I'm also happy with what Christopher McQuarrie does. Yeah, I wonder if the Mission franchise a will continue to exist after Tom Cruise at some point. Like whether or not that means, I mean, I hope, I certainly hope that he doesn't like die in the middle of a stunt or something. Yes. Although that's the joke <laughs> that everybody's been making for years. Um, but like you know, it seems like something that Hollywood will will refuse to let go. So whether Cruz uh, hands the baton off willingly or, you know, evolves into a different place in his career where he's no longer interested in making these or whatever. Um, I, I do wonder if like, if there will be room for them to go back to that kind of old uh, formation of what you're saying of like, you know, yeah. different people bring breathing new life into each entry. That would be, that would be kind of an interesting um, evolution of this franchise to go from that to something else to very like specific. And then back to that again uh, would be really cool to see. So um, I, I just feel like Cruz and McQuarrie are like so linked right now that there's no way that Cruz would make one of these movies without McQuarrie, like, you know, for the rest of his career, basically. So um, it just seems like there's yeah, no way. It he seems would take like chance. Anything Tom Cruise wants to do now has to involve Chris McQuarrie. Like he did, he he co-wrote Top Gun Maverick. It just seems like they're they have to work together. They're simpatico. Yeah. Yes, a hundred percent. Okay, so yeah, I wanted to do a, a ranking, an individual ranking of the entire Mission Impossible franchise here, and I wanted to put a spoil a spoiler warning here that we will be spoiling every Mission Impossible movie, including Dead Reckoning Part One. So if you're not seen that yet. Um, 
yeah, you can maybe listen until one of us mentions that and then uh, tune out temporarily. But um, Chris, I thought the the most interesting way for us to record this episode would be to do it where we go in reverse order. So like our, our uh, least favorite first, and then just like go bounce back and forth between the two of us and sort of compile our individual lists. And people will get confused about who's is where and all of that. But at the very end, we can just read them real quick in, in order or something. Yeah. So um, I just thought it would be a good way for us to like, surprise each other a little bit because we haven't talked about what our lists are and just see how they all shake out and how how close they end up being so um let's kick things off for you with your uh, i guess number seven choice there are now seven mission impossible movies so what is your um again it sounds weird to say what's your least favorite mission impossible yeah. movie because we both really like this franchise but uh yeah what is your least favorite so far i feel like this is going to be the least surprising pick and that's going to be mission impossible 2 is the is the weaker uh element in this franchise but I want to add, I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. I think it's got some really cool stuff going for it. It's very uh, early 2000s. It's very, it feels almost 90s-ish, even though it came out in 2000. Uh, I, I love the the John Woo action. I love the, there's a fight at the end where Tom Cruise like kicks a gun and it flies directly up in front of him, which is like, <laughs> that's that's not how that would work. But it looks amazing because he catches the gun and there's another part where he's like, he jumps off a motorcycle and the, the villain jumps off a motorcycle and they grab each other in midair, like stuff like that. I love that. I, you know, it's, it's just that I happen to think that every other movie in the franchise is so much better than this, that it has to be at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, I actually agree with you. I think Mission Impossible 2 is my least favorite as well. And I would not have said that before this most recent revisit. I, I know that you and I talked about this when I was like going through a couple weeks ago. Um, and watching this this movie, but like I grew up watching this movie. I love this movie. I thought it was just like as cool as hell when I was 15 or 16 or whatever. Um, but upon rewatch, it is dropped significantly for me. So I'm also going to put MIT at the bottom of my list. I think it's it's super stylish and John Woo brings a lot of flair to it. But I think this movie is just like focused more on style over substance, unfortunately. So yeah. Um, cool stuff like that that knife moment where it like almost stabs him in the eye is like so visceral like my i, I like flinch every time i watch that during that same beach yeah. fight scene that you mentioned but uh so it's not like completely without merit but um but yeah anyway that's that's mission impossible impossible too so uh your number six slot chris uh and again this is going to be a thing where i like the movie but it's just not as good as the others that come after it and that is mission impossible three the jj abrams uh film which um that that feels like it's sort of the beginning of what the franchise will become, but not quite. And uh, it's definitely different than what the two movies that came before it. And it just sort of exists in this weird middle ground, I feel like. But um, it's got great stuff going for it. I, I really actually like the Ethan Hunt, uh, Julia, I forget her last name, relationship. I like that. that char- I feel like that's a nice, different sort of character beat for Ethan Hunt that he tried to settle down and get married. And obviously it wasn't going to work because he has to, you know, run around and do stuff. Yeah. Uh, but obviously the one thing everyone talks about in this movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is just dynamite playing the villain. Uh, he go, he goes so hard here. Is it like, he did not have to go as hard as he could. Here. <laughs> he could easily have just like phoned it in and still been imposing, but he's so genuinely scary in this movie that it's like, it unnerves me how, like how how like dangerous he seems and he's it's weird because of all the villains in the franchise he's the, like the least dangerous he's like an arms dealer basically he's not like trying to destroy the world he's after like the rabbit's foot we never even find out what the hell that is mm-hmm. and like all, all the other villains they're like they want to bring about new world orders and blow up stuff with nukes and this guy is just a <laughs> he's just like an arms dealer but he's somehow the scariest villain in the franchise which is just amazing yeah, I also am going to put MI3 in this slot. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see how close this our list end up being here, yeah. Chris. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I think the complaint, the knock about MI3 is that it feels like an episode of TV, right? Like it, it, the J.J. The Abrams of it all, the fact that this came out right around the same time is like lost. And, um, you know, it sort of is very much a relic of that, like uh, Kurtzman and Ortsy era of like those writers being like the go-to blockbuster writers in Hollywood. Um, so I, I totally see and acknowledge that complaint, but I feel like on my most recent rewatch of MI3, like I still had a lot of fun watching the movie. It's just a, a 
uh, I guess, a casualty of the greatness of the rest of this franchise that it yeah. ends up at this spot on the list. But um, yeah, as you mentioned, Philip Seymour Hoffman just like absolutely rules. There's like a, a single mindedness to him that is so, yeah, like he's, you said, he's, he's really scary. And he has this wonderful sense of being somebody who is capable of going absolutely nuclear in any situation. But for the most part, that volatility is like barely contained underneath the surface. Like you can see that he's just like seething throughout yeah. most of the movie, um, which brings a really cool energy to that character. So yes, you and I both have MI3 at our number six slots. So let's go to number five. What's number five for you, Chris? All right, this might be controversial, but my number five is Dead Reckoning, the newest Mission Impossible movie, which again, I like this movie. It's 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 massive. It's immense. It's got some... Uh, incredible set pieces. The, the the entire third act where uh, they're on the, the Orient Express is just one of the coolest things the series has done. But something didn't quite click with me with this movie. I feel like it's really bloated. There's a lot going on here, like too much. And it's 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 so much they, they made it into two movies and it shows. Like there's just so much going on here. I also feel like the way the film instantly introduces this new character of grace played by Haley Atwell and Mm -hmm. expects us to like be all in on her is a little, uh, like short sighted. Like I don't have any problem with the character, but it's, they set her up to be like this great new member of the team. And I just didn't see it. Like she just, she's a thief basically. There's like, it it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot to that character, but there's supposed to be more there than there is. Um, I also don't quite love the whole villain plot. I feel like the actor, uh, Isai Morales, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. does a really good job. He's He's got this, like, first of all, he's a very handsome man. Like, Jesus Christ, what a good looking guy. <laughs> but uh, he's just like a handsome guy who's who's got this sort of uh, cool menace to him. But I don't quite buy him as the villain because he's he's working for, like, an algorithm. And <laughs> I don't understand how that ha- like. How did this guy wake up one day and be like, I'm going to let a computer boss me around? Like, it's just like a, it's a very weird, weird thing. And I kind of like the algorithm. It's called the entity. I kind of like that. It's, you know, because you could look at it as like a metaphor for Tom Cruise fighting the streaming wars and he wants to beat the algorithm and, and, you know, bring his pure uh, adrenaline drenched cinema to the big screen. You know, I'm all, all for that. That's, that's cool. But I don't know. I had high hopes for this and it just didn't quite live up to them. I am very curious to see how that opinion changes when, whenever part two uh, mm-hmm. arrives and I get to you know see them as one big movie. But for now, this is at my number five. Yeah. I, uh, once again, I agree. I thought that wow. I was going to be doing something that was, um, yeah, like off the beaten path by putting this so low, but, um, Brad and I had a big spoiler conversation about this movie earlier in the week. And I'm glad that you that I'm, I'm talking to you because I was very curious. To, I mean, I, I read your review, but like, obviously you couldn't get into the details of that because you didn't want to spoil anything for anybody. But I'm glad that I have you on this episode now so I can sort of pump you about certain uh, aspects of this movie. So like the the Grace thing you mentioned, I, I fully feel like um, Haley Atwell is like super charismatic. And like, I, I found her to be a welcome addition to this cast and she was very game and like her charisma and, and sort of... Um, uh, relationship and and like uh, chemistry with with Tom Cruise is like um, very easy and enjoyable to watch. But I felt very much like this movie um, did all of that at the expense of the Ilsa character. So yes. I was wondering how you felt about the Ilsa thing because you couldn't obviously say, "Hey, yeah. Ilsa dies" in your review. So what, what's your take on that? Man, that bugs me. That really, but because first of all, Ilsa is like my favorite character in this franchise. Like the minute they introduced her, I was like, holy shit, this character is great. And I, I'm glad they kept bringing her back. But to then just kill her off. And it's like, it feels like they're killing her off so they can just make room for Haley Atwell. And I'm sorry, but between those two, I want <laughs> Ilsa. I don't want Grace. I don't want this new character. And I get it. You know, there should be stakes. You know, they, these, these characters go through so many, uh, you know, literally impossible missions that it makes sense that sooner or later one of them will die. But it just bugs me that she's the one who ended up dying. And there's a part of me 
and it, it could be just wishful thinking, but there is a part of me that thinks they're they're going to fake it out and have her come back. Because I was going to ask you if you thought there's any chance that she might come back. Because so the way they do it is she's like her eyes are open and she has a knife that looks like it's in her heart, so it very much looks like she's dead. But they also cut away from that and. They don't tell us like what they did with her body. They don't like they call the cops. Like what happened? Did they (laughs) just like leave her on that bridge? And the fact that it's, it's done like that makes me wonder if they're, because earlier in the movie, they actually have another fake out where it looks like she got shot, but she's fine. And I, Mm -hmm. a part of me wonders is if, is if they put that in the movie to deliberately be like, look, we did this before we're going to do it again. But again, that could be wishful thinking. That's what my wife was saying when, when we walked out of the theater, she thought the same thing. She was disappointed in the Ilsa death, but she, she uh, pointed out that um, opening sort of a desert sand sequence. And that line that Ethan says, where he says something like, you know, you're dead, like stay dead um, where he's trying to, to protect her or whatever. Um, And, and wondering if like that was some sort of setup, but it just seems, and, and, you know, uh, I guess like meta textually, Christopher McQuarrie has talked so much about, the Ilsa character in interviews and how much he loves that character personally as, as the, the guy who created her. Um, and I just feel like, you know, the guy who has this much love for that character and has made her such, um, uh, an integral part of these mission movies in, in a relatively short span of time, just wouldn't do her so dirty like that. Um, but it did seem, you know, fairly conclusive in the movie. Like Cruz is, um, you know, he, he's, he's standing over her body and like, there's nobody around and he, he seems devastated. And then there's that moment that Brad mentioned on the, on Tuesday's episode where like they're in Venice and he's up on the the balcony in that, a mirror of that same shot that, um, or a reflection or whatever, a, 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 a repetition of that same shot that, um, where, Ilsa says, this is my first time in Venice. And they, they sort of like hug and embrace yeah. on that uh, balcony. And then like, there's that same framing of Cruz after Ilsa dies, where he just is standing out there by himself. And he, he just looks so devastated. And like my, you know, my justification brain for like, okay, if Elsa, Ilsa is still alive, maybe he's like doing that for the entity. Like it's, it's all one big I mean, yeah. performance or something where like, you know, the entity could be watching. So he's like going through this, uh, you know, this, this performative grief almost of this character. But um, I just don't know how much of that is, is, yeah, like you said, wishful thinking and how much of it is like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just reading yeah too much into the movie or what, but um, what else about, about dead reckoning? Did you not get a chance to write in your view that you wanted to mention? Was there anything? Um, hmm, I think I'm trying to think. Uh, I, I, I think I said this in the interview, but I do, I do feel like this movie handles, it's part one element much better than I didn't see fast X, but I think it handles it much better than uh, what the hell is it called? Across the spider verse, which yeah. that, that cliffhanger ending friggin' bugged me to no end. I was just like, come on, this is, this is half a movie. Whereas so much happens in dead reckoning that it really feels like a full movie. Well, at the same time, you know, leaving room for what comes next. So I do think it handled it a lot better here. Um, I do think it's interesting that we get Ethan backstory and I'm not really sure if we need that, that yeah. he was like a criminal at some point and uh, some woman, I don't know who the woman is. I guess we'll find that out in, in part two, but she gets killed by Gabriel and he's there and it's, it's the past and it's, it's just a weird sort of like, Oh, I was not expecting Ethan Hunt's past to suddenly be up. What do you think about that? element that they introduced in the movie that basically the IMF is made up of people who were like sort of like shady criminals at one point and then they just decided to either keep being criminals or become IMF and that that did not seem right to me honestly like I bought I could buy like one or two of them but like all of them are like yeah it, it was kind of odd like, because like what crime did Benji commit come on like <laughs> yeah is he, exactly like, he's standing there in that room and he's like yeah it happened to all of us yeah. like, all of us were presented with this choice and you're like you're Simon Pegg what you what could you have possibly done you're such like, like a goober but like at least with Luther it's established that he was like a hacker and stuff like that but like yeah. what was what was Benji's crime I'm dying to know <laughs> yeah that's great um yeah and the, and the, it actually sort of devalues the luther thing from the beginning because like cruz's whole team in the first movie dies and he has to go to luther as a sort of outside 
source or whatever to pull off the CIA heist. And then he, he, you know, those characters become tight and he sort of like pulls Luther into the IMF sort of like as a, as a friend and colleague or whatever. But like, yeah, like you're saying, if every member of the IMF was a criminal, then, then Luther is no longer as special as he once was, which is, yeah. it feels like a strange storytelling choice, but, um, and like, yeah, it just, it raises these questions about like, Okay, so the uh, food delivery guy who shows up in the beginning of this movie, who has joined the IMF, like, what did he do? What about the girl in the record store in in Rock Nation? Like, yeah. what crime did she commit to then, you know, get to this point? So, and then, like, you know, Kittredge was the head of the IMF. Did he commit a crime too? Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. I, I want to know. Like, it's just like a weird thing that they just suddenly decided. Like, uh, I mean, maybe I'm like reading too much. Maybe it's not specifically a crime, but that's what it really felt like. That they were all on like the wrong side of the law before they decided to join the IMF. Yeah. I think, I think they like explicitly say that. I think you're right. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just not, uh, I, I was hoping that there would be more to that backstory thing in part one, because it's so tantalizing and such an interesting idea. I felt like they just kind of like, it was almost cheap for them to, yeah. to tease it and then not pay it off in this movie. And I understand like it's a two part story and whatever. I know we're, I know they're not going to just like leave that dangling forever, but, um, but yeah, that's the the thing that I'm most curious about uh, going forward into part two. So, um, okay, let's move on to your number four choice, Chris. All right. Maybe here is where we're going to start to diverge. So my number four is ghost protocol. <laughs> Is this yours too? It is, yes. Oh my God. Wow, we are very aligned here. All right, it's the final three that we're going to see where we are. But anyway, Ghost Protocol. Ghost Protocol is not the best Mission Impossible movie, but it, I think it's like the most entertaining, if that makes sense. It's sort of like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's not the best, but it is the most entertaining entry in that franchise. And uh, this has, you know, so many amazing set pieces uh, that really can't be topped but it also feels like that's all there is to this movie like it's just one set piece after another and there's very little in between and it works it's i'm not complaining because it's so entertaining and uh you know when when he's scaling the building it's it's like i get vertigo watching that on my tv Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine what the hell it was like to do it in person so and to like be the camera crew and the director and just to be there doing that like i would I would be shitting myself. Like, just like no way. So, you know, that, that stuff rules. It's just, it's not quite as good as my final three entries. Yeah. I think the, I really love Paula Patton in this movie. I feel like she is one of the strongest female characters that this franchise has seen. Um, And I I was bummed because sometimes they bring these characters along for, for future movies or whatever, uh, as, as evidenced by Luther and Ilsa and Benji and whatever. And I was hoping that Paula Patton's character would come along for more. Um, and I was kind of bummed to see that they just like left her behind. Like, you know, the characters in uh, Mission Impossible 3, like um, Jonathan Reese Myers and yeah. um, Maggie Q, like they're, they're kind of um, they're some fine. of the worst, yeah, worst supporting <laughs> characters because there's just like not much to them personality wise. But I thought they did a really good job of Paul Patton. Um, so I was bummed to see her not in there, but that's what makes Ghost Protocol um feel like more of a complete story to me and, and like something that um that like elevates above you know the sort of like okay just plug and play formulaic uh, elements of mission impossible um yeah the burj khalifa like uh, unreal i mean it, it's really hard to not uh tip your hat to that sequence because Absolutely. it's just so good uh and on my rewatch my most recent rewatch i noticed that really this entire franchise is often about how technology can fail you but nowhere is that more evident than in this film and the way that yeah. that Brad Bird uses that idea for both comedy and suspense at the same time sometimes is, is really, really great. So, um, yeah, that's yeah. why it's, it's my number four. Brad uh, Bird needs to direct something again because he did this and he did it Tomorrowland, which everyone hated. And it's like, come on, Brad Bird, get get back behind that camera. Do something yeah. live action again. Yeah, it would be really fun to see him maybe even step back into this franchise. One I mean, day, yeah. But, um, but who knows? Uh, okay, so let's see if our top three align right. as well, Chris. What is your number three? Here we go. Number three is the very first Mission Impossible directed by Brian De Palmer. Uh, yeah, that's mine as well. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, the final two. Here we are. Anyway, Mission Impossible, the most different of all the films because 
this is very much a De Palma film. It's very much a, a like a, a little thriller, and I kind of love that about the movie. I love the way it's constructed. I love that it's got that Hitchcockian thing going for it. You know, the wrong man. He's 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 uh, wanted, to, even though we know he's innocent. That's that's a big Hitchcock thing, and uh, just you know the way De Palma works his his own sensibilities into the movie. Like he he was very much a director for hire on this, but he didn't like phone it in. He was still making it a Brian De Palma movie. And I, there's something about that, that, that just kicks ass for me. And I love the entire opening where the entire team gets killed off. You know, I, I, when this came out, there was a lot of controversy about that because people who liked the show were like, what the hell you're killing off the team and you made Jim Phelps a villain, but I have never watched the show. I have no yeah, connection <laughs> to the show. So for me, I was like, this is all new to me and I'm, I'm 100% on board with this, but uh, that whole opening is so masterfully staged where they're on a mission and one by one, the team gets killed off. And then uh, he goes to meet with Kittredge and they have that amazing conversation where there's all these Dutch angles and it's shot from below and he blows up the fish tank. It's great. It's mm-hmm. just, I, I find this to be oddly enough, one of the most rewatchable movies in the series. Like I love rewatching this, even though it doesn't have the biggest action scenes. It doesn't have the, the, you know, the same sort of jaw dropping set pieces. Like, yeah, they're on top of a train, but it's very much not, like a real train. You can tell it's not like a real train, like, mm-hmm. like in uh, uh dead reckoning. So, but I, I really love this movie. It's, 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 it's great. The whole Langley break in, man, you can't, you can't top that. That's like, that is the definition of iconic that him just hanging from the ceiling in that room and, and catching his, his sweat. Although it bothers me. That scene really bothers me because there's not enough room yep. between his hand <laughs> and the floor yes. for him to catch that damn thing. And yet he does it. And it yeah, bothers I, me every single time. When I did the oral history of that, I I was really hoping that somebody would talk about it. And Paul Hirsch, the editor of the scene, specifically mentioned that without like I, I didn't want to um to guide the conversation too much when I was talking to these people. I wanted them to like tell the story of how yeah. the scene came to be. So I didn't want to be like what did you think about this part or whatever? You know, so I, I sort of like stood back and let them just talk about it. And I was so happy to hear him bring that up because yeah, it just doesn't make any sense that like Ethan's like a millimeter off the floor. And then, you know, he's, he has the room to bring his arm all the way under and like turn the hand up, you know, right side up or whatever and catch the sweat. Uh, and Hirsch is basically just like, yeah, it doesn't really work, but like we shot it in close up. So we got away with it kind of thing. So yeah. I was glad to, to see him acknowledge that. Um, yeah. I mean, just like an unreal sequence. And like, I, I feel like the dialogue might be the best in the first mission possible out of all of these movies. There's the, you know, Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. the list is in the open. Yeah. <laughs> like all the, all these moments and the, the, um, the Kittredge of it all, like, Henry Zerny, man, he's just like, oh yeah. I, I, you mentioned in, in your review of Dead Reckoning that he's just like making a meal of every single line that he's given. And and it really works that way in the first movie too. Yeah, I forgot to mention it when we were talking about Dead Reckoning, which is, uh, I apologize because he's so, he's so good. Oh my God, I love Henry Zerny. He's so, I'm so glad they brought him back because he just adds something. It's just something about his, he has a very distinct way of talking. It's, mm-hmm. it's It makes everything he says like, fascinating like every, like even if he's not saying something that profound you're just like man that sounds cool from the way he says it i want him manning a radar tower in alaska by the end of the day yeah. just send nail him his clothes, clothes. <laughs> it's yeah. so good <laughs> oh incredible and i'm glad we got a lot of him in dead Rick, and i hope he's he's in the next one a lot too because i i need my kittredge fix yeah okay so so i apologize for not bringing this up during the dead reckoning thing we're kind of bouncing all over the place here but but speaking of the kittredge of it all what did you did you like understand what was going on on the train there at the very end with Kittredge? Like I was talking to Brad and I apologize to the listeners for repeating the same point again and over the course of two days. But like the idea that like Kittredge is is revealed to be the buyer on the train at the very yeah. end on the Orient Express. And and I thought as an audience member in that moment, it's supposed to be this sort of jaw dropping, like this, this gasp inducing moment of like, oh, my God, Kittredge is, is here. And then like the the national, uh, the director of security or intelligence or whatever, Carrie Elwes' character is also there. And he seems like the bad guy kind of, but yeah. Kittredge is also there and kind of positioned as a bad guy. But then Grace just says like, hey, I want a job. And, and, he, and he gives it to her at the end. And then <laughs> Kittredge is also the one who is doing the closing narration of the movie. So it doesn't seem like 
you know, he's been punished or, or yeah. caught or like is actually the villain. But um, I don't know. What did you make of that? I definitely had that same thing where I was like, oh, are, are they saying Kittridge is, is the villain? But I do think eventually it sort of evens out. And it, I think it's meant to recall the ending of the first movie where Kittridge is on the train there too. And he's trying to intercept the knock list. And so that's sort of what he's doing here. But it's, I do think it's confusing for a, a few minutes where you're like, oh shit, is he a, He's a villain. I wasn't expecting that, but yeah. I guess Carrie always was the real villain. And that was a character, which is weird because that character is in like two scenes. <laughs> it's like, why were like, what is the point of that character? He just shows, he shows up at the beginning and there's, I, I is there another scene with him in the movie? I don't think so. No. He, so yeah, he shows up at the beginning and then he just shows up again at the end and then dies. It's like, what the heck? <laughs> like they couldn't have like done a bit more with that character. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Speaking of, of Kittredge, like that moment in the first Mission Impossible with the gum, red light, green light, and yeah. and that explosion um, reminded me of like the the tactility that that appears a lot in this franchise of like the little gadgets and cool things that that uh, the characters get to play with a little bit. And it feels like in Dead Reckoning there isn't quite as much of that as there no, has been there previously. Like. You know, there's, of course, like the machines that make the masks and and the kind of typical stuff. But like there really isn't like, OK, Ethan, you have this cool thing that does X, yeah. Y and Z. Um, I guess there's the gadgets. Yeah, there, there's the the glasses, like the augmented reality glasses in the airport where he's able to like track the key or whatever. But yeah, I was just hoping for more. Um, I don't know. I guess that's that's an area that where there's some crossover with like the James Bond franchise, right? Of yeah. Like the the, uh, the, the sort of yeah Q stuff. So, um, all right, Chris, I'm, I'm so curious to see if we have the I'm, exact same list here. So I'm pretty sure we are because I don't know. But here we go. So. Okay, let's hear it. You're number two. Okay, number two, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Okay, we actually don't have the okay. same list. All right, all right, we did it. Thank God. <laughs> All right, so this is the film that introduces Ilsa Faust, and uh, what an introduction. Man, there's 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 like 10 different scenes in this movie that are focused on Rebecca Ferguson's legs, and look, I don't want to be a creepy guy, but I enjoy watching that, and so <laughs> that's going to put the movie like higher <laughs> in my in my ranking, but uh, this is just an exciting damn movie, man, I uh, and I also loved how – I love the introduction of – of Ilsa because it's, it's, it's someone who matches Ethan Hunt for the first time in the franchise. It's someone who's like as good as he is, maybe even better. And that's such an interesting angle to throw in there. Um, and I like that they don't make them romantic in this movie. It's sort of handed they're romantic in dead reckoning, which I don't really like, but I like that. They're just like their colleagues. Basically they don't have time to, you know, fall in love or anything like that. They're too mm-hmm. busy on their mission. And uh, the whole opera house scene is, is dynamite that whole, the way that unfolds. Uh, so yeah, rogue nation, man, number two for me. I'm glad we didn't have the same. Yeah. Ranking. So I'll just talk about it now. Cause rogue nation is my number one. And I'm, I was shocked to discover this on my rewatch. I, I remember liking this movie a lot when it came out, but I loved it on the most recent rewatch. And I think the reason Chris is, to quote uh, Dr. Nikorvich from Mission Impossible 2, every search for a hero must begin with something that every hero requires, a villain. Ah. And uh, to me, Solomon Lane is the best villain that Ethan has ever faced, which, again, I, I would have thought Phil Seymour Hoffman in MI3, like just based on my memory, would have occupied that space. But on, on rewatch, like so much of this movie is about Lane being multiple steps ahead of the IMF to the point where Ethan has conversations about this is exactly what he wants to happen. Like we're doing, we're falling right into his plan kind of thing. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, it kind of feels like the Terminator where he just has this like, you know, almost inevitability to him where like he says he's going to ruin your life and God damn it, he is going to ruin your life. Like there's no getting out of it. He is just going to come after you and like, you know, people are going to swoop in and save him from the most unlikely scenario, but he is going to, you know, turn the tables on you and F you up. Um, But Lane has this, he he brings more of a sense of helplessness. Like no matter what Ethan and his friends do, there's no way to outsmart this guy, which I feel like that's why at the very end of the movie, when they trap him in that glass box, it's so incredibly satisfying. Um, And that, that sort of like uh, emotional low to high roller coaster for me, um, yeah, vaulted Rogue Nation into my personal number one spot. So, uh, yeah, I, I just I was surprised, and also like, you know, one of the things that um, that often 
we talk about on this podcast and, and that we've talked about offline is like the idea that like modern action movies, sometimes you can kind of just like zone out after a while. Yeah. Um, for me, Rogue Nation, every single moment in every action scene was like kept me on the edge of my seat and like engaged. And I never once like sort of checked out or, you know, I never like look at my phone when I'm actively watching a movie or anything. But like sometimes yeah. you just, your mind kind of wanders if you if you know like, okay, there's this big chase in the middle of the movie. You know that the character's not going to die right here or whatever. You kind of just like, all right, let's get on. Let's get on with it. Let's move things along. And I, I feel like everything is perfectly paced in Rogue Nation. So um, that was another reason why it, it launched up to the, the top slot for me. So uh, let's talk about your number one and my number two, Mission Impossible Fallout. Why is that your number one? Yeah. So what you just said about how every action scene had you on the edge of your seat is, is how I feel about Fallout. Fallout kicked my ass when I first saw it, um, especially the whole finale where uh, there's a helicopter chase and he falls out of the helicopter for a moment and then they end up on the mountain and they're fighting on the mountain and the helicopter is rolling down the mountain and they're going to get hit by the helicopter. It just keeps going. And uh, I love the addition of Henry Cavill here. I feel like he's a he makes for a great villain, too, because he's he's physically imposing in the way that the other villains have not been. You know, he's a musk, big muscular guy who can actually fight. Like Solomon Lane is like a little Weasley guy and mm -hmm. Philip Seward Hoffman, you know, he's a burly guy and the other villains are just like dudes. They're not like, they're not like muscle bound, uh, you know, killer. You know, one of the, one of them is John Voight for crying out loud. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea of, of giving Ethan, uh, uh like a physical antagonist, I thought it was a nice addition. Um, I just, I just love that this sort of closes things out for Ethan in a way, like the whole Julia thing. I'm, I'm, I love that they resolve that. And so like they easily could have just been like, whatever, she's not in these movies anymore. But I, I like that they give her a happy ending and they also let her get in on the action by helping defuse the bomb at the end. So I just think stuff like that is so, uh, integral to, to why I love that movie. And, um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's an incredible, it's, it's like a very, very close one and two for me. Um, especially like you mentioned that the whole like last, whatever you want to call it, 45 minutes of this movie is just like firing on absolutely every single cylinder. And, uh, it's just really like a thrilling, perfect blockbuster filmmaking. Um, I just think there might be like a few moments throughout the, the middle of the movie that kind of, I don't know about sag, but like the the whole like white widow character has never really done much for me and like yeah. the the broker stuff and like the the some of the john lark uh plotting get gets a little um ahead of its skis i think in, in certain moments but yeah it's it's just so satisfying to have all these characters that you have come to really enjoy be thrown into this um you know this this crazy adventure and like have the stakes be so high and so personal for ethan with like bring Julia into the, into the third act like that. Um, yeah, really just sort of like ratchets the whole thing up to another level. And then like the action, maybe, I don't know, like the, the highs of this movie, I think are higher than any other mission impossible film. Um, yeah. the, the stunts are like more incredible, even than dead reckoning. I think like the, the, uh, I agree, yeah. yeah, what they were able to do in, in this movie with the, uh, the halo jump and the, um, especially that the helicopter stuff, like just seeing it, not even like him dangling below the helicopter, which he really did, which is like yeah. terrifying in and of itself, <laughs> but like just him flying the helicopter through those, uh, you know, over those glaciers and through those gorges and stuff at the end of the movie. It's like the photography there is so incredible. And like, yeah, you just, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we can all agree that maybe this has maybe we can all agree that this has the best, uh, Tom Cruise running scene in it because man, is he running in this movie? There's, it's that entire period where he's just like running on roofs and, and jumping and he actually broke his foot that doing that one yeah. jump. And it's just like, it's the epitome of all the Tom Cruise runs. He just, I, he, he's got to run like miles during that sequence. Like he yeah. goes up into a building and he jumps out the window and then he's on the yep. ground again. And he runs through a church. He just like goes, it's like insane. <laughs> it just keeps going. Yeah. I did. I did. I think the reason that this is number two instead of number one is because, um, yeah, I not not the reason, but a part of the reason is that I feel like this movie does Benji a little dirty where like that character was so smart in, in the previous movies. And like there are moments in Fallout where, you know, during that chase that you're you're talking about, uh, 
he's watching a little blip of where Cruz is on his screen. And he's like, why is he running in circles? And like Benji's yeah. smart enough to know that like, <laughs> if he's running around the outside of a building, it's because he's like circling the building and going upstairs or whatever. And then there's that moment where Cruz is like talking into his earpiece and he says like, you know, Benji, which way do I go or something? And he's like, left, left. No, the, uh, sorry. I had the lock screen on or whatever. <laughs> like, Benji, you're, you're like, a, you know, one of the top tier hackers in the entire world and like a huge tech guy. And you're telling me you've made like the same mistake that like my grandmother makes or something when, when she's messing with an <laughs> iPad, like, come on. Yeah, and then, fine. and then he's like, Oh yeah, sorry. I had it on 2D instead of 3D or something. Like it's just these moments where, like one after another, uh, Benji is just like taking L's left and right. I'm like, man, you're you're really uh, sacrificing. It, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like how um, how Marcus Brody is like turned into a little bit of a, like a laughing stock in yeah. last, last Crusade. But uh, so you know, a, a couple little little uh, nitpicks, I guess, about Fallout. But like overall incredible movie and uh and i think we can say an incredible film franchise chris it's so good i can't wait to see what they do next even though i didn't love dead reckoning as much as i wanted to i can't wait to see like how are they going to top that what crazy because the marketing for dead reckoning for years was playing up that maybe not years but for a while was playing up the whole mountain the whole cliff jump on the motorcycle mm-hmm. which <clears throat> i gotta say I feel like that was a mistake because the scene is not as, I mean, it's impressive obviously because I'm not driving off a goddamn mountain, but <laughs> it's been used in so much of the marketing that when I saw it in the movie, I was just like, eh, I've already seen this. Like I, yeah. like I found the train stuff to be much better because that wasn't like all over the marketing. So, right. but with that in mind, I'm dying to know what like, what signature set piece stunt is going to take place in um, the next one. I mean, who yeah. knows? I, I wonder if they will have the um, the self control to make the the big stunt for a part two that they use in all the featurettes like the second most impressive stunt in the yeah. movie. Like because that would be so great if they held something back um, and and like surprised everyone uh, in in part two with like some jaw dropping thing. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, I understand that like Paramount needs to get butts and seats for this thing. So yeah. like, it, it makes sense that they have to like do whatever they can to get these, you know, to highlight these incredible moments, which are, really are incredible. But um, yeah, it, it does definitely like take a little bit of the wind out of the sails when you, you've seen a 10 minute making of of how this yeah. thing works, you know, like long before the movie ever comes out. So. Um, okay. Well, yeah, I guess, uh, if you guys have any other, you know, mission impossible related thoughts, you can send us an email and let us know. Uh, I'm going to link to a bunch of the new stuff that I, that we mentioned in the beginning. And then also Chris's review of dead reckoning part one. And then I'll, I'll keep a link to my oral history of the CIA high sequence from the first movie in the show notes as well. If you want to check that out and that's going to do it for today's episode of the show, you can find more about mission impossible, all of them really at slashfilm.com. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.